to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. The law only shows us what we should do, tells us what we haven't done, and leaves us powerless to change anything. It is, as Paul said, it's the thing that was intended to drive us to Christ the Savior by showing us that it gave us no power to do what it commanded us to do. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Galatians. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, in a message titled, Sons and Heirs. Now, here's Pastor Brian. Paul is uh, continuing to educate the Galatians on the true purpose of the law, which he says, you remember, that the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. And then once we come to Christ, uh, once we're justified by faith, we become the sons of God, we become the heirs of God through Christ, then the, the law has done its work. Now, in the verses here before us, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, Paul is just going a bit deeper into this same idea, and he's um, developing a bit more thoroughly what it means to be an heir and a son of God through Christ. So we pick up in chapter 4 and verses 1 through 3. Let me read them. So Paul says, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. So remember, the Galatians are thinking that somehow the law is going to enhance their relationship with God. Somehow it's going to supplement what they already have in their faith in Christ. And Paul is just going out of his way to show that, no, that's not the case. The law served its purpose. And here he says, uh, you know, there, there was a time and a place for the law. And that's like, like a child who is actually the heir cannot enter into the full inheritance until a particular time that has been appointed by the father. So as long as the law was in effect, we could never fully enter into the promises of God. But now that Jesus has come, we have entered into the promises of God fully and the law is now no longer a factor. So through the law, we were unable to receive the inheritance. The law could not bring us into the promises of God. That's what he's pointing out. So if the law couldn't bring us in the past into the promises of God, then why would anybody think that it's going to have any ability to, to take us you know, anywhere in a, uh, a positive direction? So, so Paul's point is that it doesn't. So remember, the law only shows us what we should do tells us what we haven't done and leaves us powerless to change anything. 
That's, that's all the law does. The great mistake that people have made for ages, going all the way back to biblical times, is thinking that the law is somehow a means to saving us. It's not that. It is, as Paul said, it's the thing that was intended to drive us to Christ the Savior by showing us that it gave us no power to do what it commanded us to do. Now, we're talking here in the context about the law of Moses specifically, but let me remind you that that law, although it came through Moses to the nation of Israel, that law has been written on the hearts of every human being. And the, the law of Moses had three aspects to it, sort of. It had a legislative part that had to do with the nation. It had a ceremonial part that had to do with all the sacrifices. And then it had the moral component. Now, the Ten Commandments sort of sum up the moral component of the law. And that's the one that's binding for all people for all time. And, and that's the law that's been written in the heart of every human being. Those things that are contained mainly there in the Ten Commandments. So, so everybody, whether they are subjected to the law of Moses or whether they've come under what they might call like a law of Christ, maybe like, like is revealed in uh, the Sermon on the Mount or something, or whether people are just operating on some sort of a moral basis, it's all ultimately connected back to God's law. Now, there are people today in our culture who reject the Bible, reject the Christian gospel, in some cases reject that there's even a God, but when you listen to them and you watch how they behave, you realize that they do have a law that they seek to live according to. They've got a standard. There, there really isn't, uh, we talk about a, a person being amoral. Amoral means they have no morals. But it's, it's very difficult to find a person who's amoral. Everybody has a morality. Some people's morality is, is one that they've just simply invented or they've had it passed on to them from their family or, or something like that. So there, there's not so much uh, a non-morality versus a morality. There's, there's a biblical morality that we as Christians hold to, but then there's a sort of like you could just say a, a humanistic or an atheistic morality. And they're very committed to their morality. They are very judgmental in regard to people who don't live according to their morality. They're very aggressive when somebody disagrees with their moral view on something. We might think the view is immoral. In, in other words, we, we don't agree with it. It doesn't line up with a biblical view of morality, but it still is a view of morality. So my point is simply this, that there's a law for everyone, and whether it's the law of Moses or the law that you've just invented or inherited, the truth of the matter is nobody lives up to the law. And that, that's the whole problem with law. You, you can't live it uh, yourself. This is why we see such radical hypocrisy in our culture today, because, and, and you know, you see so often what we would call a double standard. People saying, you know, this is, this is the way it works, but then they don't apply it to themselves. Well, that's just another example of uh, here's a law, but, but everyone falls short of it. So Paul here to the Galatians is telling them essentially once again this same thing. 
that the law could never bring us into the promises of God. Now, not only is this stated in the biblical text, remember as we've gone through Galatians, Paul is quoted from the Old Testament. He says um, that those who have failed to keep the law have uh, come under a curse. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. And then remember, Jesus became a curse for us for it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So the, the idea here is that whether it was stated in a particular text, it was also illustrated in the life of the nation that the law could never bring us into the promises of God. And it was even illustrated through the life of, of some of the, the recognized national leaders. And here's the example that I want to remind you of, the example of Moses. Now, Moses, of course, was a person. But Moses becomes, after his own time, he becomes sort of the representative, the human representative for the law. So even when we come to the New Testament, we have references to the law of Moses. Now, it's the law of God, but because Moses gave it, it is oftentimes referred to as the law of Moses. But here's the point. Think of Moses. Moses represents the law, and what could Moses not do? Moses could not enter the promised land. You remember that? Here's Moses, the great lawgiver, the one who brings the children of Israel out of their bondage in Egypt. But the one thing that he cannot do is he can't take them into the promised land. Now, the background story to that is that um, he was forbidden by God to go into the promised land because of a failure on his part. So God had given Moses an instruction to speak to the rock. In the early history of the nation, when they came out of Egypt, they were dying of thirst in the wilderness. And the Lord showed Moses a rock. He said, now take your rod, smite the rock. When you smite the rock, water's going to come forth and the people will be saved. So Moses did that. 40 years later, there's a similar situation that develops. It's a different generation. It's not the same people, but it's the same kind of thing. They come to Moses. They think they're going to die of thirst. They're complaining. Moses goes to God. God says, Moses, speak to the rock. Don't strike it. Speak to the rock this time. Water will come forth and refresh the people. So Moses goes out, and instead of speaking to the rock, he's angry. And so he strikes the rock. And in doing this, he misrepresents God. So after the fact, God provides the water. The people are refreshed and saved. But Moses is then told by God that because you fail to represent me, because you, you failed to sanctify me before the people, you shall not go into the promised land. So all Moses could do was view the promised land from a distance, but he could not go there. He could not take the people there. Now, that actual event in the life of Moses was actually a story that was communicating the same thing because Moses couldn't take them into the promised land, but Joshua would be the one to do it. Now, remember, Joshua is the name for Jesus. 
So in Moses and Joshua, you have, a, you have an illustration. You have a picture. The law cannot take you to the promised land. The best the law can do is sort of show you, you know, from a distance what the promised land looks like. The law tells us about the blessing of obedience and all of that, but all we can do is see it from afar. Joshua had to take the people into the promised land. And so in those two men, you have kind of an illustration of this same point. So as long as they were under the law, they could never enter into the promises. And the law would hold them in this place of bondage until the Savior came. And so Paul goes on and he says in verse four, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. So in the fullness of time, you ever think about God's view of time? Have you ever felt like God was not coming through on time? I think that oftentimes we do think that. Uh, we, we feel like, man, you know, this thing needed to happen yesterday. And it's, it's not happening. And God, where are you? And, and how come you haven't come through? But you know, the truth of the matter is God, the problem is not with God. The problem is with us. God's not on our schedule. We're, we're on his schedule. But we forget that a lot of times. God has a perfect timing for all things. He had the perfect timing for Jesus to come into the world. And it was in the fullness of time. Now, remember, it was 1,400 years after the, the deliverance of the people from Egypt before the Messiah came. And that's a long time. But through those 1,400 years, God was preparing the world for the Savior. And so in regard to why the period of Christ's coming is termed the fullness of time, there are many factors that would make it the fullness of time. Let me quote to you from John Stott. He said, the many factors, for instance, he said, it was the time that Rome had conquered and subdued the inhabited earth when the Roman roads had been built to facilitate travel and the Roman legions had been stationed to guard them. Secondly, he says, it was also the time when the Greek language and culture had given a certain cohesion to society. At the same time, the old mythological gods of Greece and Rome were losing their hold on the common people so that the hearts and minds of the people everywhere were hungry for a religion that was real and satisfying. Further, it was the time when the law of Moses had done its work of preparing men for Christ, holding them under its tutelage and in its prison so that they longed ardently for the freedom with which Christ would make them free. See, God was preparing the world. Now, he, he Stott here mentions the, the fact that the Roman roads were developed. Why was that important? Because the gospel was now going to become universal. Remember, the message had been relatively limited to Israel, God's covenant with them, but now the time is going to come where the message is going to be proclaimed from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And you needed some roads in order to do that. So in the fullness of time, this system developed that would be the vehicle through which the gospel would go into all the world. Also the language issue. 
And so Stott refers to that, that uh, much of the world had at that time spoke the one language, just like many people in the world today speak English. English is sort of the lingua franca. It's the, the preferred language around the world today. That's how Greek was at the time. So now that there's this one common language, the New Testament, of course, is written in what? It was written in Greek so that it could go out as far and wide as possible. And then he refers to the, the, the fact that the mythological gods and so forth, that they were being, uh, their influence was diminishing. And, you know, there was the, the rise of the philosophers and all of those things that had transpired there. But then the law of Moses had brought people to that place of, of being weighed down and burdened. And the apostles in the book of Acts, they, they would talk about how the law was a weight that neither we nor our fathers could bear. So it was the fullness of time. It was God's appointed time. And just a quick little reminder, look, God has an appointed time. Has God given you a promise? Has God spoken something to you? And you're thinking, well, I don't know. You know, maybe God's not going to keep his promise because it's been so long. But listen, God is seldom early, but he's never late. He's right on time. And so don't worry. He's, he's going to come through just like he did here. Now, Paul tells us four things about what happened in the fullness of time. Number one, he says that God sent forth his son. And why this is important to note is because it, the very statement itself shows us something about Christ. It shows us that he was preexistent. It shows us that he came into the world from outside the world. God sent forth his son. You see, Jesus, you know, some people have, have wondered this, asked this. I've even had uh, Jewish and Muslim people ask me this question. How could a man become God? That's their question. How could a man become God? Well, the answer is a man can't become God. And a man didn't become God. That's not what we teach. That's not what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? That God became a man. That's a whole different story. And if God is God, he could certainly become a man if he chose to do so. And he did choose to do so in the person of his son. And so it was in the fullness of time that God sent forth his son, Jesus, over and over again. He made it a point to tell people that he came into the world. He was sent into the world. He was sent by his father. And so we have a reference to his preexistence. We have a reference to his deity. But then it says that he was born of a woman. Why does it say that? Because it wants us to know that Jesus was a real human being. He wasn't like a, a superhero, you know, that came from another planet as a full-grown man. He wasn't uh, a spirit being who just sort of appeared here and there in a seemingly human body, but it wasn't really a human body. No, he was born of a woman. He was a human being, just like we are. So in these two statements, you have a reference to both the, the divinity of Christ and to the humanity of Christ. See, the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is the God-man. Somebody asked the question the other day, well, you know, why is Jesus so special? Or why, why, why does he stand out among the other religious leaders in history. Well, he stands out because Jesus is God. And no other religious leader even claimed to be God. 
But Jesus did. He claimed to be God the Son who became a man. And Paul affirms that here. But then he says that he was born under the law. He was born under the law. Now, born under the law means that he was, he was born as a son of the law. If you have Jewish friends, you might be familiar with uh, what's called a bar mitzvah. Uh, a bar mitzvah is for boys and a bat mitzvah is for girls. And it, it basically means you become a son or a daughter of the law, a son or a daughter of the commandment. And so Jesus, he's born into that situation. He is a son of the law, meaning he comes into the world and he's sub subject to the law. Not just the general law that we talked about a moment ago that's written in the, in the hearts of everybody, the faint traces of God's law that's still there even in the heart of, of all people, but the law, he comes into the world as a son of the law in order to keep the law so that he can then pay the price for those who have transgressed the law. And this was a huge part of uh, what we know about Jesus, that he kept the law. He never violated. He kept it perfectly. He did the one thing that must be done in order to be saved by the law. You have to keep it. Jesus kept it. And so he could then pay the penalty for those that violated the law, which would be the rest of us. And then finally to redeem those who are under the law. And that's what he did by, by keeping the law himself. And then by dying in the place of those who had violated the law, he redeemed those who are under the law. Now, let's join Pastor Brian and Cheryl in the studio as they share about this month's resource. So, Brian, I'm holding in my hands Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. This is a book you've been trying to get me to read, and I'm going to. Yes. But tell me why I should read it you again. You've got to read this book. This book is tremendous. Rebecca is brilliant, and she kind of takes on all of the current questions and opposing views that come up against those who hold the Christian faith and the, the title of the book. You know, she's confronting Christianity. People are saying, well, Christians believe this and Christians did that. And she's just taking 12 of the current hardest questions that Christians are facing. Questions like, doesn't religion cause violence? Or how can you take the Bible literally? Doesn't Christianity denigrate women? Isn't Christianity homophobic? And she does a superb job in addressing these questions. And I think anybody today who's seriously thinking about what's going on in the culture and engaged in the culture, out in the workplace or wherever, this is a book you want to read because this is going to tremendously help you to have a good response when people bring these questions up because many are confronting Christianity and this book will help you to know how to answer those who are confronting Christianity. Confronting Christianity, Rebecca McLaughlin. Again, this month's resource is a book titled Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. You can order the book Confronting Christianity by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it, then click on the donate button. 
when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin to prepare you to answer some of culture's most difficult questions regarding Christianity. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Galatians. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California. Hi, this is Cheryl and Brian Broderson. And we wanted to tell you that we're going to Israel in October 2022. And we want you there with us. Yeah, the dates are October 23rd through November 4th. And this is going to be a tremendous trip. Cheryl, what's your favorite thing about Israel? I love the Galilee, but Brian... You and I both know there's so much because we love watching the Bible come alive, whether you're at Tel Aviv or you're at Jerusalem or Caesarea. Yep. Or Mount Mount Carmel. Carmel. Yes. We are so excited about this Israel trip because we absolutely love going to Israel. So we'd love to have you join us October 23rd through November 4th, 2022. And you can find more information at israel.cccm.com. We'd love to have you join us.